0: There was a man who was on his deathbed, and his wife faithfully sat there by his side every day. And with what little energy he had one day, he propped himself up on the side of the bed, and he looked his wife dead in the eye. And he said, Honey, I proposed to you during the middle of the Depression. I had nothing, and you said yes. And then I got shipped off to war, drafted by the military, sent overseas, and you enlisted as a nurse just so you could be closer to me. And when I got wounded in battle and sent home, you were there with me through all of my recovery, through all of my rehab, and since then, we have had nothing but one struggle after another. And you stayed with me through thick and through thin. And now here I am, lying in this bed, dying. And the first face I see every morning is yours. And that got me to thinking your bad luck. <laughs> you know, some people just don't know what a blessed life is. Some people don't know what good days are. Some people don't know how to have a blessed life. But Peter did. And I want you to turn over to the third chapter of Peter because in the third chapter of uh, 1 Peter, I should say, he gives us directions on how to have a blessed life and this is fascinating to me this is fascinating to me because peter peter's the disciple who had the incurable case of foot and mouth disease peter is the apostle who denied jesus three times peter is the church leader who got called out for hypocrisy by paul and yet this is the guy who shares the information on what makes for good days in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, aside from being baptized into Christ, which Peter declares at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3 is what saves you, he emphasized something else that contributes to your life being blessed. And that emphasis is a strange treatment of people. Peter will point out that a strange treatment of people leads to good days, leads to a blessed life. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called... That you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Did you notice that in verse 9 of this passage, Peter speaks of obtaining a blessing? And in verse 10, he quotes from the 34th Psalm, which speaks of how to see good days. He's talking about a life that has a blessing and a life that sees good days. And so Peter is providing directions on how to have that blessed and good life. And all of the instructions that he will give in this passage, that he will quote in this passage, all of them revolve around relationships more specifically, all of the instructions he gives and that he emphasizes in regards to having a blessed and good life, all of them are focused on how Christians should treat others. So what I want to do this evening is focus on four ways Peter says that we are to treat people. And these ways may seem strange, but they will result in good days. I want to start with this one. Our strange treatment of people should be manifested by being a life blesser. Be a life blesser. Did you catch that in this passage? Particularly in verse 9, as as Peter is going through his instructions and giving these descriptions uh, of characteristics you should possess, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's one of our missions in life, to bless other people. But how do we bless the lives of others? It, such blessing may start with the word that's highlighted on the screen. It may start with sympathy. There are five, there are five characteristics mentioned in that first verse, from verse 8. And the one that stands out to me the most is the word sympathy because I don't know that this word appears in this uh, this Greek word appears anywhere else in the New Testament. the The word translated sympathy is is uh, uh, appears in most English translations, but there are a few that will choose to translate it as compassion instead. But the Greek word from which it comes is sympathes, which is transliterated sympathy. And it refers to, it, it means, the Greek word means to be sympathetic or to suffer or feel the same thing as another. So the character quality Peter is talking about is this ability to deferentially see things from another person's point of view. That stands out to me because that word is unique here. We hear about brotherly love elsewhere. We hear about tenderheartedness. We hear about unity of mind and humility. We hear about those traits, but but in this verse, sympathy just stands out. And maybe it's something that we miss sometimes, to truly possess sympathy for others. Sympathy matters because it's how we communicate our understanding and our concern for other people's predicaments. In order to sympathize with someone, you have to be willing to put yourself in their position. You have to be willing to set aside your own preconceived notions, your own prejudices, and your own perceptions, and allow yourself to impartially examine the situation from their perspective. That's not easy to do sometimes. It can be very hard to put yourself in somebody's shoes. But sympathy That is what we're called to have, and and, and putting ourselves in other people's position, putting ourselves in their perspective, that's how we achieve sympathy. We live in a world that lacks sympathy. We live in a world that doesn't understand sympathy sometimes. Just ask the IRS. I I mean, if you're you're behind on your taxes, the IRS doesn't have a lot of sympathy for you. You owe them that money, and they're going to get that money one way or the other. Sympathy is not one of those traits that abounds in this world. But it's a trait that we're supposed to have. As Christians, we're not to be lumped with the unsympathetic. We are to be the models of sympathy because we are the model of Christ. And that's why the concept of sympathizing with others is present in the Bible, even though it's communicated in different ways. For instance, you can go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, and I did not get that on the screen. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, Paul instructed Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weeps. A similar statement appears in 1 Corinthians 12 that we mentioned this morning. It's verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Suffer with those who suffer. In such passages, Paul is communicating the necessity of sympathy, the necessity of understanding and appreciating what someone is going through. But here's the thing about sympathy. Sympathy is not an end of itself. If all I ever do is feel bad for somebody, I haven't gone the full length that Christ intends for me to go. And that's where mercy comes into the equation. You may recall we spent a, a lesson a couple of Sundays ago on the topic of mercy. We emphasized what mercy is. And one of the key attributes of mercy that we talked about that Sunday is that it's an action. In fact, we defined mercy this way. Oop, I, um, I've lost my definition of mercy. Oh, there it is undeserved benevolent action on the part of someone else it's undeserved benevolent action that you take for somebody else it's important to emphasize that mercy is an action when you go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan and Jesus concludes that parable by saying hey which one was a neighbor to the injured man The answer is the one who showed mercy. It was an action. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't a thought. It was an action. And it's interesting here, when you consider Peter's life-blessing instructions in these two verses, it's worth noting that they're paired with anti-retaliation instructions, particularly there at the start of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead bless. These instructions address mercy. When you're wronged, don't you just want to get even? When you're mistreated and wronged, the fleshly part of you deep down wants revenge, wants retaliation, wants things to be fair. But the spiritual part of you knows that's not the way we handle things, because that's not the way Christ handled things. If Christ retaliated, if Christ sought revenge, if Christ wanted his wrongs righted, then you and I would have no hope of salvation. Mercy is that response to wrongs that can be a a source of blessing in such a situation. That undeserved, benevolent extra step to bless someone's life who has wronged you That's mercy. See, Peter didn't just instruct us not to retaliate when wrong. Peter instructed us to bless when we're wrong. That's not an easy assignment. And it's not even a popular assignment. It's a strange assignment. Because mercy is not a human attribute it's a godly attribute that's why you don't find it very often in this world if you have ever gone black friday shopping you know you know that mercy is rare if you've ever been a few minutes late for boarding a plane at the airport you know that mercy is rare if you've ever been pulled over by a georgia state trooper for speeding in douglas county you know mercy is rare and that's not a specific instance for the record And if you've ever gone to eat lunch at Rico's and one member of your party hasn't arrived yet, you know mercy is rare. We know mercy is rare. And yet, that's what we're called to have. And here's the thing. The world doesn't uh, understand how to have mercy, but it's appealing to them. There's this fantastic parable in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. And it's a, it's, a, it's a complex parable. I don't have time to break it down in all of its entirety. But this, this guy who has charge of, a man, of uh, his master's debts, and he's about to get fired, and he doesn't know how he's going to live once he doesn't have this job. And, and he finds manual labor too demeaning. He, he, he finds other forms of employment out of reach. And so he comes up with a plan to cut The bills in half for the uh, debtors of his master. So that when he is no longer employed, they will show mercy to him. The key takeaway from me from that parable is that mercy is attractive. Mercy is appealing. Our world may not know how to possess it, but they certainly love it when they see it. And so sympathy and mercy, to me, are how we bless the lives of others. How we fulfill this call to be people who manifest our strange treatment by being a life blesser. But, when we look at Peter's words here, if we want to have a good life, if we want to have a life that is blessed, our strange treatment of people should be manifested also by being a sweet talker. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now Peter is quoting from Psalm 34 here. But he's using it in this context of what it means to have a blessed life, to receive a blessing in this life. And what Peter is saying is that in order to live a blessed life, we must be selective with our words. That's because our words will either demonstrate our conformity to the world or distinguish us as strangers in this world. In James chapter 1 and verse 26, James made a very bold declaration. He said, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. James identified the litmus test of our spirituality not as our attendance to worship service, Not as our participation in evangelistic efforts, not in our active prayer life or active Bible study life, but in our vocabulary, in our use of our words. The litmus test of our spirituality for James is whether or not we can control our tongue. And it's because our words can either prove or disprove our relationship with Christ. So Peter instructs us to keep our tongues from evil. That means we must eliminate negative speech habits like deceit, like gossip, and perversity, and complaining, and slander, and boasting. All of those things are condemned in, script- in Scripture. And as one preacher said, you cannot have a poisonous mouth and a prosperous life. Not spiritually speaking. And if you think about those negative speech habits... They are all detrimental to relationships. They are all harmful to people. If we're going to be, have the blessed life that Peter is talking about here, it comes down to us treating people differently than the world treats them. And that goes all the way to our mouths. So pray like David did in Psalm chapter 141, and verse 3, for God to set a guard over your mouth and keep watch over the door of your lips. Follow James' advice in James chapter 1 and verse 19 to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Live conscious of the fact that Jesus said on the day of judgment people will give an account for every careless word they speak in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. Understand the significance of your words because the blessed life is a life that keeps the tongue from evil and the lips from speaking deceit. And our strange treatment of people that will lead to a blessed life should also be manifested by being a do-gooder. You know, that's terminology we avoid. As a kid, you didn't want to be known as a do-gooder. I don't know that Bob ever was. But you didn't want that title slapped onto you. That made you a stick in the mud. Nobody wanted to hang out with you. You were a do-gooder. Of course, that's also making me sound really old right now to use that terminology. But anyway, it's interesting because that's what Peter surmises here in verse 11 about what your life should center around. Going back to the start of this train of thought, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Now, I find this instruction quite interesting because it indicates that a blessed life is not just a life of absent bad things it's a life full of good things sometimes i think we get this mindset that being a good christian that being a good follower of christ that being a good disciple a good believer whatever you want to say that it's all about the things we don't do if i want to be a good christian then 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 i don't consume alcohol if i want to be a good christian then i then i don't curse if i want to be a good christian then I don't engage in sexual immorality. If I want to be a good Christian, I don't do this. I don't do that. The do not list piles up very quickly and is often quite conscious for us. And so we intentionally or unintentionally come to the conclusion that being a good Christian is all about not doing things that are wrong. We conclude that goodness is associated with the absence of wrongness. But doing good is more than that. Doing good means that you not only avoid doing the things that are bad, but you intentionally do the things that are right. Think about Paul's juxtaposition position of the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He says there are some things that are bad that you must avoid. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. And then he says there are some things, some good things, that you must pursue, that must be a part of you, that you must bear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's interesting because the list of good things you should do for some reason are always shorter than the list of the bad things you shouldn't do. And it's like we give greater weight to the longer list. But both lists are important. Both lists are the complete person. Paul's point is that a blessed life cannot settle for just saying no to bad things. A blessed life must also say yes to the good things. And there are two primary reasons why. One reason is found in Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. I'm sorry, I don't have that on the screen. But Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. There Paul says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So one reason we do good to prevent ourselves from becoming unfruitful Christians. The other reason we do good, Peter provides in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, Peter says, "For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people." It seems that Peter's point is this: that if you're constantly in pursuit of what's good, if you're focused on doing what's right, then when accusations fly, they won't stick. That doing good is not only preventing you from being unfruitful, it's protecting you from being slandered. So the reason the blessed life is a do-gooder life is because it's a life that won't be unfruitful, and it's a life that will deflect accusations of wrong. Our strange treatment of people must be manifested within that do-gooder lifestyle. That life that chooses to pursue what's right in all aspects, that treats people rightly in all aspects. So, if we want to have the blessed life, we've got to be a life-blesser, We've got to be a sweet talker, we've got to be a do-gooder, and finally we have to be a peacemaker. Look at what Peter said in verse 11 of 1st Peter chapter 3. He said, "Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him seek peace and pursue it." It's worth noting that this passage doesn't say whoever desires to love life and see good days should hope for peace. Nor does it say whoever desires to love life and see good days should wait for peace. It says they should seek peace and pursue it. That language indicates that peace is a choice we intentionally make and we actively pursue. Similar language appears in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 where we're instructed to make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. To make Every effort to live in peace. And then Paul would say this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When you combine these peacemaking instructions, the overarching image is that we are intentional, we are actively pursuing peace in any and every opportunity we have and all of these passages assign the responsibility of peacemaking to those who have found peace through the prince of peace and that's because the world doesn't know what peace really is Christ does and we've experienced that so we have the responsibility of being the makers of peace in this world I'm reminded of an incident that occurred on April 29th, 1992. Many of you will recall it. A truck driver named Reginald Denny was driving through South Los Angeles unaware of what was going on earlier that day. Four LAPD police officers who are Caucasian were acquitted for usage of excessive force in the arrest of Rodney King, an African-American man. Acquitted despite videotaped evidence. The result of the verdict sparked outrage about racism across the city, uh, an issue that was ongoing at that time. And at 6.46 p.m., Denny's truck was attacked by rioters. One rioter opened his truck door while another pulled him out of the vehicle. Four men violently attacked him. One even went so far as to break a brick over his head, and they left him unconscious and nearly dead in the street. His skull was fractured in 91 places, and, and it was pushing into his brain. Rescuers intervened and escorted him to a nearby hospital where surgeons were able to save his life. Some of the individuals involved in his attack were arrested and tried. One of those men was named Damian Williams. And at the conclusion of Williams' trial, Denny approached Damian's mother, hugged her, and said, I forgive your son. Those kind of moments of forgiveness are are beautiful, but that's not really what caught my attention with this story. The most interesting part of the story is how the world responded to Reginald Denny's attempt to make peace. One commenter apparently said, upon seeing Reginald Denny forgive his, attacker's mo- forgive his attacker via his mother, one commentator said, you have to remember that Reginald Denny suffered brain damage. So making peace, offering forgiveness, are not from a heart. They're from a damaged brain. The world doesn't understand peace. You see, the goal of peacemaking is not just to bring an end to fighting, but to begin the process of healing. And that will always seem strange to the world. If you, as a child of God, are willing to pursue peace with people, it's going to be strange to them but it's going to bless your life. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to love life or just survive it? If you want to love life, then be a life blesser, a sweet talker, a do-gooder, and a peacemaker. Because all of those things will be strange ways of treating other people. And if you really think about it, there are all ways that the Lord has already blessed us. There are all ways the Lord has already treated us. And it's our job to reflect Him. This evening we journey to this passage because I know deep down all of us want a blessed life. All of us want to see good days, and sometimes we don't feel like those are in the future. But they are. Because God's Word tells us how to have them. If you look at yourself this evening and realize you're not taking the steps that Peter outlined for a blessed life, maybe you need to respond to this invitation. Repent and seek forgiveness, seek help, seek change. Or maybe you need to enter the blessed life. Begin that journey as a child of God. As Peter says at the end of that chapter, it's through the waters of baptism that you find that new beginning. Through the water of baptism that salvation comes to your life, and maybe you need to make that decision this evening. Whatever your need is, we offer the invitation so that you might be able to make that decision while together we stand and see.